So during his campaign in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. organized a series of sit-ins, marches, uh, protests, all as an attempt to desegregate the city. But then on Good Friday, which was April 12th of 1963, King was arrested in Birmingham for violating an injunction against mass demonstrations and processions without a permit. And once he was arrested, he was placed in solitary confinement. And when he was in solitary confinement, eight clergymen published an open letter asking King to stop doing what he was doing. And King's very famous letter from Birmingham jail began in part as a response of a so-called call for unity, the statement that was made by the eight clergymen. Um, the letter was also you know, aimed at the white moderates outside of the church, including members of the Kennedy administration and members of editorial boards of major newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times and Time Magazine, who had actually published editorials that were a lot like that statement that was published by the uh, eight clergymen. So although this group of white moderates had explicitly agreed that racial segregation was wrong, they hadn't themselves joined the movement. And they preached moderation and gradual progress. And they advised King and his scores not to demonstrate and not to do much of anything except to engage in open and honest discussion. Um, they asked King and his supporters to wait patiently for the courts to end racial segregation. King rightly saw this as asking him to continue to act, accept injustice, exploitation, and indignity. So the letter from Birmingham jail is, I mean, pretty much the piece of King's writing that is the most well-known uh, among sort of the public, but also among political philosophers. And in most cases, King's work is discussed primarily as an essay. Um, so the letter from Birmingham jail is thought of primarily as an essay that is justifying civil disobedience. The famous political philosopher John Rawls cites the letter, for example, um, and talks a bit about King in his own writings about civil disobedience. And also traditionally, the letter is thought to be sort of a response, a direct response to the white moderates. And I've interpreted the letter in this way in my own work, most recently in this um, piece in Political Theory, um, which you could find on my webpage, but it's already, already published online in Political Theory. But in my book, I'm offering a different reading of the letter from Birmingham Jail. What I argue is that the letter isn't just an essay um, sort of justifying civil disobedience. I mean, it's of course it is that, but it's also and perhaps even primarily an essay on political motivation. And I'm gonna say more about what I mean by this in just a second. I also argue that King is writing not only for a white audience, but a black one too. Now you might wonder, well, what evidence do we have for this? Um, because we know that in some versions of the letter from Birmingham jail, it was published in a way that was addressed to dear white moderates, right? Um, but we know that just after days after publishing the letter in local and national newspapers, um, King preached a version of a letter to an all black audience. And we also know that even before it hit sort of the mainstream, the letter was being circulated, you know, within Black churches, all of which suggests that King thought that the letter spoke to Black people as well as white people. For as further evidence of this, you know, for, for sort of recognizing that King often has a Black audience in mind, and I'm not going to say too much about it here, um, but we have to note that King is often very careful to distinguish between different types of Black audiences. Very often he talks about the masses um, and very often he's very critical of the black and middle and especially upper class for their political passivity. 
So in this way, King sees that the black middle and upper classes, he sees them much in the way that he sees the white moderates. So his letter from Birmingham jail then is a letter, um, you know, as much a letter to the black moderates as it is to the white moderates. And it's also, I think one way of reading the letter is specifically as a letter to the black masses issuing a kind of call to action. So I build my claims, for, you know, my case for these claims about King's work by engaging in a very detailed discussion of the letter from Birmingham jail and drawing on other works that King wrote in the same year, including his book, Why We Can't Wait, um, and his, his book, Strength to Love, as well as lesser known speeches, letters, um, and other writings. So you might ask, you know, why does what the letter, you know, is about really matter? So on the one hand, you know, I think it's an interpretive issue. It's really good to get an important text right. But I also think it's more than this because I think getting King right will help us address a central problem in normative democratic theory. Namely, how can and ought we motivate the racially oppressed to engage in civil disobedience or as King typically called it, nonviolent direct action. So given the moment that we're in, if we're looking at the United States, there's mass voter suppression, police violence, rampant economic and health-related inequality among black and brown Americans. Some of these things apply as well to us in Canada. I think that this question sort of takes on renewed importance. And King's answer is that we have to appeal to the political emotions, both positive and negative. And what we read King in this way, at least so I argue, we get a very different picture of King than the popular view, which emphasizes all the fuzzy warm emotions such as love and hope. As I argue in some of my other work and you know, develop this idea in my own book, um, we see that emotions such as disappointment and distrust and indignation, for example, play a very central role in King's sort of motivational picture. Um, but for today's talk, I'm going to focus on the emotions of fear and fearlessness and the role that they play in political motivation for King. So in the letter, King, like the letter from Birmingham jail, King famously writes that black Americans are plagued with inner fears, harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that they are black, living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next. For King, there was no emotion that troubled the human personality more than fear. And for him, fear can come in a number of different forms. Um, one, one form is sort of personal fear. In King's view, fear, especially of ourselves, can lead to feelings of insecurity, lack of self-confidence, and a feeling of personal failure. And it can lead to what King, following other psychologists of his time, called an inferiority complex. So King sort of worried that historical circumstances could give rise to an inferiority complex. He argued that living under the conditions of slavery sometimes led Black Americans to fear themselves, to lose faith in themselves, and to feel perhaps that they were less than human. And he argues that this kind of self-fear can block an individual's latent creative energy, because self-fear, he says, can leave us too busy trying to be somebody that we are not. So we've got personal fears, but other fears are more social. They are the result of living in an economically competitive society, King says. And he actually argues that many of today's psychological problems are really the result of economic fear. So on the one hand, he says, captains of the industry are fearful of the possible dissolution and failure of their businesses and the uncertainty of the stock market. But on the other hand, the employees who are the ones that sort of keep the industry going fear unemployment and the collapse of their industry due to automation. 
And these folks, you know, typically in Kings, you have lower, um, you know, like sort of less access to opportunities for education. They often are in temporary positions with lower wages and then in turn unable to sort of build wealth across generations. And all of this leads to a kind of fear. King also says that fear can take a religious or an ontological form. So he says with the development of the atomic bomb and the accumulation of nuclear weapons, King argues that the fear of death, non-being and racial annihilation are actually at their worst. And we might, you know, some of these fears can might exist today when we think about the current situation, for example, um, in Ukraine. But the fear that King is sort of most concerned with is the fear of suffering. He explains that Black Americans fear the white man and specifically what he calls a white backlash. The truth he says is that Black people never liked racial segregation. They are just afraid to say it. Because taking a stand is for Black people, he says, always costly and never altogether comfortable. It might mean walking through the valley of the shadow of suffering, losing a job, or having a six-year-old daughter ask, Daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? It might even mean being lynched or having an explosive thrown on your porch. This is something that King himself experienced. Um, and King is confident that Black Americans will suffer economic reprisals, boycotts, threats, and physical intimidation. So in his view, the fear of taking a stand against racial segregation is for Black Americans a kind of combination of all the other types of fears. It is personal, social, economic, and ontological. And perhaps this is why it occupies so much space in King's thinking. So in his discussion of the fear of the white backlash, King is channeling Howard Thurman. And Thurman, um, as some of you may know, is a philosopher, a theologian, and I think so often the intellectual connection between King and Thurman is ignored. Um, but we know, according to some accounts, that King actually carried a copy of Thurman's book, Jesus Disinherited, um, with him on many of his journeys, which suggests that King thought very highly of Thurman's work. And interestingly enough, Thurman had a lot to say about fear. And I think sort of looking at his views, I think we'll see that they're actually very central to understanding King's own views on fear. So Thurman argues that there is something special about white violence. He says, it's the violence that is devoid of the element of contest. When two men are equally matched, the violence is terrible, but he says they're equally advantaged. When the power and the instruments of violence belong to one man alone, the fact that the other person has no available and recognized protection from violence makes his resulting fear deeply terrifying. So in a society where white people have dead weight advantages over black people, uh, and here obviously Thurman is also running about the American context, black people are aware of their disadvantage and they know they can't fight back effectively or protect themselves or demand protection from society. Thurman suggested it's not fear of death that's actually doing most of the work here. It's, he says, the deep humiliation arising from dying without a benefit of cause or purpose. It's merely being killed or beaten in utter wrath or indifferent sadism without the dignity of being on the receiving end of a premeditated act. So in the Jim Crow South, Black people lived with the day-to-day -day fear that any small insult, vague frustration, or whim could be a cause for violence. Black fear is the result of the potential for arbitrary exertion of white power. And the experience of this power, Thurman argues, attacks Black men and women's sense of self-respect and personal dignity. 
Now, King agrees with Thurman, and this is very clear when he speaks about the indignities of being harried by day and haunted by night and not knowing what to expect next. He also goes beyond Thurman's discussion of fear by suggesting that the fear experienced day to day in, Jim Crow, in the Jim Crow South occurs even more acutely when Black Americans are fighting for a cause. As he explains, Black Americans fear a white backlash in response to their nonviolent resistance. And the kind of inequality and in power and undermining of Black dignity that Thurman has in mind is even more evident in these cases. Because in these cases, white power is expressed not just through individual acts of retribution, which may or may not be premeditated, but through actions that are carried out by the state. So in this case, power is even more obviously one-sided. And the actions of the state are a resounding proclamation that Black lives don't matter. So when the state acts as suppressed claims of Black civil rights, it's tantamount to saying that Black lives are not valued equally. And as Frederick Douglass suggests, when this sentiment is expressed by the state, it poses a great threat to Black dignity. So the fear of taking a stand against racial segregation is for Black Americans, social, economic, religious, and existential. Now, King says that whatever form it takes, fear can be overwhelming because it arises, it can arise everywhere we turn. And he says that it leaves people psychologically wrecked and spiritually dejected. It drains of us our energy and depletes us of our resources, leaving us utterly exhausted. In some cases, perhaps especially in relation to the inferiority complex, uh, King says that fear can lead people to flee to a world of illusion and fantasy where they believe they are doing the things they cannot actually do in the real world. And for King, this method of getting away from fear is very dangerous. It can lead to what King sometimes calls standstillism and do-nothingism. So despite these sort of this, this worry about fear, this doesn't mean for King that we should get rid of fear altogether. King draws a line between what he calls uh, abnormal fears, which are destructive, and normal fears, which he sees as being uh, necessary and constructive. Fear, as King writes, is the elemental alarm system. It warns us of danger. And King sort of reminds us that without fear, we wouldn't have survived the primitive world. And he argues that fear can also be very creative. Invention, he suggests, often comes from a motivation to escape something that we dread. So the fear of darkness led to the invention of electricity. Fear of pain led to the creation of medicines. The fear of ignorance, he writes, led to the creation of the great institutions of learning. So in short, King says that normal fear motivates us to improve our individual and collective welfare. Abnormal fear constantly poisons and distorts our inner lives. At times, King draws out the distinction between normal and abnormal fears um, somewhat differently. Um, he does so by distinguishing between what he calls normal fears and um, which is sort of fear in, a more, fear in a more general sense, but then also personal anxieties. So he says the best illustration of the difference between normal and abnormal fear was given by Sigmund Freud himself. A person tramping through the heart of an African jungle, he said, should quite properly be afraid of snakes. That is normal and in turn self-protective. You know, self but if a person suddenly begins to fear that snakes are under the carpet of his city apartment, then his fear is abnormal and neurotic. 
So in King's view, personal anxieties or abnormal fears, um, which are subjective, ought to be sort of tackled or best tackled through psychiatry. And because fear, uh, sort of more generally, unlike personal anxieties, has a definite object, for him, it's something that can be faced, analyzed, attacked, and endured. So on the one hand, we see that fear can be a barrier to political action. It can lead to do-nothingism in King's words. But despite this, it can also be very constructive. It can lead us to improve our individual and collective welfare. So in some sense, we have to be afraid in order to be motivated to try and overcome what scares us in King's view. And so this is why King believes that our goal ought not be to eliminate fear altogether, but to harness normal fear and to master it. In King's view, racial progress really just is then the result of the kind of exhaustion that accompanies fear. Um, so transforming that exhaustion, right? And, and, and that can result into do-nothingism and passivity and sort of transforming that into something more productive. So for example, King writes, as a result of their tiredness, they decide to rise up and protest. As a result of their rising up, colored peoples of the world have broken loose from colonialism and imperialism. And he said something similar about the Montgomery bus boycotts and the Birmingham campaign. In his view, black people were rising up because they were tired and they simply couldn't wait any longer for justice. So one of King's great questions then is how do we master fear? And King suggests that we have to face our fears squarely and try to understand them. So that's sort of one of the first steps. Because the more that we try to avoid, ignore, or repress our fears, in his view, the more problematic they become. So instead of avoiding fear, he says, we have to ask ourselves, why are we afraid? And in some cases, we may see that our fears are the result of the misuse of our imagination. And he thinks that that, that simple recognition of that fact can actually help us to reduce our fears. And in some cases, he says, by getting our fears out in the open, he says, we might also laugh at them. And this is good, he explains, because ridicule is often the master cure for fear. Um, so during his time when he worked at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, which was the organization that was you know, planning the campaign in Birmingham, he literally laughed at death. And this is a story, um, you know, sort of that I've heard from Daniel Daniel Pollock, uh, who, or sorry, Darian Pollock, who is uh, a grad student at Harvard and student to be assistant professor at the University of Boston. Um, and here he heard this from Andrew Young, who was a, an organizer at the time that King was in Birmingham. So just before the march in, in, in Birmingham began, you have to think about what the scene looks like. There, there are police, there are dogs, you know, there are masses of, of white people who are obviously not in support of the protests. And King sort of looks at his friends just before they're about to take to the streets and says, y'all boys ready to go to Birmingham with a big smile on his face. And so the dogs, the fire hoses, the jail time, the armed members of the National Guard didn't scare King. He cracked jokes in sort of about the racial terror that he and the other demonstrators faced. And he did so as a way of diffusing their very legitimate fear of violent retaliation. In fact, King had a, a, like a reputation as a jokester. And now we can understand why this was the case because King was constantly faced with fear and joking was his way of standing up to it and mastering it. So King also reports that there are other ways, right, that we can respond to our fear. He says some psychologists at the time argue that people can respond to fear by learning to conform to this world. 
holding that if they will only think and act like other people, they will achieve mental and emotional adjustment. Now, King adamantly believes that there are some things in our social system to which we must not adjust. So in his attempts to rouse Black people to action, King explicitly called upon them to be maladjusted because it's important in his view that Black people never respond to fear, he says, by adjusting to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination or by adjusting to the economic conditions which take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few or to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating method of physical violence. So King really believes that the salvation of the world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. And King links this idea of maladaptation to no longer being fearful of being associated with the minority idea. It specifically involves challenging racial segregation, but also challenging dominant economic systems that oppressed the masses of Black Americans at the time. So King calls on Black Americans, but especially on the economically privileged, to stall conformity and to follow the moral imperative to live differently. And he encourages them to go against the majority of Americans by shifting from rugged individualism to extreme collectivism. So being maladjusted is important in King's view to political action. We have to be unafraid of having a minority idea. So this raises an important question for King. How can fear of maladjustment and nonconformity be overcome? Well, he says that fear is to be mastered through three emotions. Fearlessness, which means something like courage or bravery, faith, and love. So because of its centrality to King's use of the emotions, I'm not going to be considering love today, but I do so in a different chapter in the book. So let's talk about fearlessness, and then we'll eventually get to faith. So King gives us in his discussion of courage or fearlessness two primary examples. In his writings about his own life, King says that he has never met someone more fearless and courageous than his father. He describes his father as self-confident, strong in will and body. He never feared the autocratic and brutal person in the white community, King says. If they said something that was insulting, he made it in clear in no uncertain terms that he didn't like it. So he's someone who's sort of willing to take a stand. We see a similar refrain in King's discussion of the creative power of protest. He writes, let us not fear going to jail. If the officials threaten to arrest us for standing up for our rights, we must answer by saying we are willing and prepared to fill up the jails of the South. Maybe it will take this willingness to stay in jail to arouse the dozing conscience of man. So according to King, fearlessness is that quality which enables us to stand up to any fear. It's the inner determination not to be stopped or overwhelmed by any object to go on in spite of obstacles, however frightful they might be. While the fearful person represses her fear and is mastered by it, the fearless person faces her fear and, is ma and masters it. King's examples also go farther than this, linking fearlessness with not only standing up, but with standing up for what is right, despite the consequences. So this is what King's father did, and this is also what the demonstrators did. Through their actions, both King's father and the demonstrators challenged the idea that Black Americans prefer segregation. So standing up for what is right in King's view requires a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. They have to be willing to take on blows and bites, so to speak. Now, the fear that Black Americans experience is legitimate. 
Death, as King writes, is a stark, grim, inevitable reality. However, King believes that the forces that threaten Black life and life more generally ought to be met with the daring courage to be. And he suggests that fearfulness breeds self-abnegation. A fearful person loses his will to live in the face of the uncertainties of life. So fearlessness is in part self-affirmation, affirmation of the worth of Black life and its continuance. So a fearless person in King's view has a zest for life because of her belief in her own worth. So we see here a connection between fearlessness and dignity, which is something I also talk about uh, later in the book. So to fully affirm her life, a person must overcome the kind of inferiority complex the King believes sits at the center of fear. In King's view, self-acceptance is key. An individual should seek to accept herself with all her limitations and all her endowments. Well, how does somebody begin to do this? Well, King suggests that every individual should start by praying, Lord, help me to accept myself. So in a way you can see this is a kind of intention setting. But on top of this, King actually says the best way to overcome an inferiority complex is to push the ego to the background so that it doesn't get hurt. In his view, many people have an inferiority complex because they spend most of their time working, coming home and thinking about themselves. And he says that their life is lived in a mirror room that reflects society's view back to themselves. And in the case of black Americans because of white supremacy, the view reflected back is one of inferiority. So to avoid the kind of self-negating reflection that can occur, King encourages people to become absorbed in great causes, ideals and principles that are bigger than themselves. So appealing to the importance of becoming involved in a cause doesn't explain how it is that people come to be moved to join a cause in the first place. So in a sense, this answer about how to overcome fear by pointing to self-acceptance and joining a cause um, just raises the question of how in the face of fear we can move people to join a cause in the first place. Moreover, even if Black people do come to accept a cause that is greater than themselves because of the constant threat to Black life that is present in a white supremacist state, fear can always legitimately reassert itself. And so I think this is ultimately why King saw faith as the most powerful remedy for fear. King was not afraid of failing to ensure desegregation. He writes, I have no fear about the outcomes of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. Um, as I sort of suggest uh, in some of my work, King thinks that desegregation can be accomplished in 10 to 15 years. But his fear, more rightly, was sort of more existential and life-threatening. And faith is especially effective, I think, in overcoming this type of fear. And I'll try to explain why. So in King's autobiographical writings, King tells us of a moment um, where fear overcame him. He gets an angry telephone call that threatens his life. And he says, you know, very frankly, that the call pushes him over the edge. And he gets a sense not only of fear, but that fear becomes so great that it turns into despair. And he felt as if he couldn't continue on in the movement. And he actually starts to look for ways to move out of the movement. He starts canceling events and so on. But then he tells us that after some prayer and meditation, that his sense of faith revived him. He says, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. So King sees faith as offering a buffer against the negative psychological and emotional effects of fear. So for King, faith, which is a cognitive attitude, 
can create affective attitudes. And these affect, affective attitudes motivate political action. So without the feelings of confidence, courage, and inner peace that resulted from his faith in God, King would not have had the determination to go on, to keep fighting the good fight, to resist fear and despair in spite of the pervasiveness of injustice and violence. Um, so for King, faith plays a very key role in moving him to overcome his fear and to engage in political action. So how did King's faith help him sort of overcome and master his sense of fear? Well, in King's view, faith in God was quintessentially moral. God was a ground of moral progress, and it's only possible because of God's power. So the feeling of God at his side reminded him that moral progress requires action. He says God is at work in his universe. He is striving with our striving. As we struggle to defeat the forces of evil, the God of the universe struggles with us. Evil dies on the seashore, not merely because of man's endless struggle against it, but because of God's power to defeat it. So God doesn't strive for us, in King's view, but alongside us. So this is no passive faith. King strongly cautioned against a fallacy of thinking that God will cast evil from the earth, even if man does nothing except to sit complacently by the wayside. He argued that we have to join our faith with action. He says we must pray with unceasing passion for racial justice, but we must also use our minds to develop a program, to organize ourselves into mass nonviolent action and employ our every resource of our bodies and sounds to bring an end to racial injustice. As he says, always man must do something. So for King, we humans are the instruments of God in, in this moral work. It's our responsibility to work as far as we can to bring about the beloved community, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And King inextricably links the cognitive in belief in the existence of God with action, asserting that they must work together to bring about the beloved community. So one part of faith may be called the mind's faith, he says, wherein the intellect assents to a belief that God exists. The other may be referred to as the heart's faith, whereby the whole man is involved in a trusting act of self-surrender. So this act of self-surrender allows us, in King's view, to become instruments of God, God's beings to justice and the end of evil. So here we see is another strategy for overcoming fear, surrendering oneself to God. So King's moral and philosophical conception of faith in God also wrote, underwrote what Ryan Preston Rover has called a sense of faith in humanity. This type of faith, says Preston Rover, is a forward-looking and optimistic attitude. When someone has faith, she forms expectations about people's future attitudes or actions. When someone who has faith in humanity forms such expectations, she tends to judge, even in the face of reasons for doubt, that people will act decently, provided that they receive the right forms of encouragement. So this is central to how King saw faith motivating political action, even in the presence of the existential threat that white people and white supremacy posed. Because he believed in God's goodness and power, King believed that all people had the capacity for goodness. This wasn't just some naive belief. He didn't believe this uncritically. His faith simply disposed him to hold onto the belief that right action was attainable and that it was a real and live possibility with the right and kind of encouragement from black people. So King himself expressed a secular faith in humanity when he expressed faith that was not grounded in any specific thoughts or feelings about God, but in the actions of others, particularly others' works toward political progress. 
For example, King wrote of a trip to India, which he said had a great impact upon him personally. He said it, he saw the amazing results of a nonviolent campaign, and he saw that they were brought about by the people who engaged uh, in that nonviolence alongside Gandhi, his sons, his grandsons, his cousins, and other relatives and other close comrades. So King says he, that he left India more convinced than he had ever before been that nonviolent resistance was the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom. He said it was a marvelous thing to see the amazing results of a nonviolent campaign. So he offers us an expression of faith in nonviolent human action, which he said leads to redemption and the creation of the beloved community. It's also too important to note that King did not merely look outside the country to India. Um, in the letter, he specifically turned and looked into the great pain of the past struggles of his ancestors. He says, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery cannot stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. So if King's ancestors could maintain a boundless sense of faith in the future and persevere and overcome slavery, then surely he and his supporters could do the same. King also derived a great sense of faith from his wife, Coretta. He writes, Coretta saw the great possibilities of the movement and had a unique willingness to sacrifice herself. In the darkest moments, she always brought the light of hope. And without her fortitude, strength, and calmness, King says, he could not have withstood the ordeals and tensions surrounding the movement. So we see that King's sense of faith and moral progress is renewed when he thinks about Coretta and her own commitment to the movement. Similarly, King's faith in humanity was also reinforced by the political efforts and progress produced by the Black student movement in Montgomery which he saw as a movement based on faith and the future and on the possibility of the future bringing into being something real and meaningful and crucially, he says, based on hope. As he had said of his faith in God, he said that the students' faith and their political action were antidotes to despair, allowing them to continue to move forward in the face of overwhelming obstacles. He says it is out of this deep faith in the future that they are able to move out and adjourn the council of despair and to bring new light in the dark chambers of pessimism. It seems that the actions of young black people helped to support King's own faith and fight off his despair, which resulted from being afraid. He doesn't exactly explain how or why this happened, but perhaps seeing these young black people with their full lives ahead of them, ready to be thrown in jail or to be beaten or even die. In other words, ready to sacrifice themselves and act that in King's view was of course the highest moral virtue. Maybe seeing this helped King to believe that progress was possible and especially that progress was being in fact made in that very moment. So the boundless faith that Coretta, the black students and his ancestors had in the future passed to King himself, allowing him to see their goodness and by extension, 
the goodness of all those who are participating in the movement, and even the potential goodness of those who are not yet participating. According to Preston Roeder, faith itself and God or in others fosters this awareness of and attention to goodness. When someone who has such faith makes judgments about people's past or current attitudes or actions, she tends to be acutely sensitive to evidence of people's decency, including evidence that others are likely to overlook. And this is perhaps what made King more attentive to the fact that not only were black students protesting, but some whites were joining them in the streets as well. He wrote, I am thankful that some of our white brothers in the South have grasped the meaning of the social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Others have marched down, uh, with us down nameless streets of the South. They have languished in filthy roach infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of policemen who view them as dirty N-word lovers. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, they have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action antidotes to combat disease of segregation. So why is being attentive to white goodness important? Well, recall one of the main factors leading to King's debilitating sense of fear is the existential threat posed by white individuals. King saw the participation of whites as evidence of their humanity, a faith that served to mitigate or at least work alongside his fear of them. Their participation was evidence that under the right conditions, whites were capable of doing what was right and meeting their commitments. And this helped to reduce the existential threat that white people posed, reducing his fear and ultimately making it easier for him to act. But of course, in his view, white people were unlikely to act without pressure from black Americans. And this is why King closed the letter with a reminder that even the actions of these good white people were motivated by the Black Americans who were already protesting, including protesters such as James Meredith and Rosa Parks. Ultimately, it is King's faith in Black people that reduced his fear of the ex existential threat that white people posed. So the upshot then is that King identified fear in its various forms as a central barrier to black political action, the kind of action that was needed to transform the nation and to alleviate racial injustice. And he believed that through fearlessness and faith, fear could be appropriately channeled into concerted nonviolent political action. So I wanna close with some very brief remarks about the relevance of these arguments for today. So in the summer of 2020, you know, we saw mass protests in response to the police murder of George Floyd. This was led you know, predominantly by the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, um, and led by Black Americans. And it was a clear assertion of self-worth and dignity and fearlessness on the part of Black Americans. And in response, we actually see many white protesters joining them on the streets. Um, and in fact, this is probably, you know, the, the amount of protests and the number of Americans that took to the streets was sort of unprecedented in history in the United States. So this is a massive, important moment in American political history. But then, you know, essentially after the summer of 2020, right, we see, you know, maybe in January, uh, we see the Capitol insurrection. And many people interpreted this insurrection at Capitol Hill um, as a kind of white backlash. There were swastikas, um, there were other sort of, you know, Confederate flags, other symbols that we associate with white supremacy in the United States. And 
I think what this sort of suggests to us is that we've got this phenomenon. We have a beautiful and powerful assertion of black dignity and worth and agency, but then we see, you know, a counter response that was very violent. And so I think these worries that King had, the legitimate worries about the potential for a white backlash are obviously um, exist still today. And this raises questions then for us about fearlessness and faith. And given that this fear, the fear of a white backlash is legitimate. And, and, and what we mean by white backlash is a violent white backlash. Given the fear of that happening and happening again is legitimate. Um, maybe fear, fearlessness and faith are not enough to overcome legitimate fear of white reprisal. We might need to appeal to other emotions such as righteous indignation. And we might need to use other tactics that go beyond marches, sit-ins, and riots. Now, these are questions that King himself grappled with very deeply and that I talk about in my own book and in some of my popular pieces. But I, I think it's certainly something for us to think for ourselves about, you know, in the current moment that we find ourselves in. Thank you so much for listening. I really look forward to hearing your thoughts and questions as we continue the discussion.